Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking to Michelle Christo. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, everybody. My name is Michelle Christo. I am a certified national drug and alcohol interventionist, a lot like the television show. I have to suffer. I don't think they show you as much of the intensity that goes along with it. <laughs> so a little bit about you first. Um, where are you from? From central New Jersey, born and raised in Heightstown um, and East Windsor. What's your education background? My educational background is um, I have my degree in psychology, my bachelor's degree in psychology, and I am now board certified as an interventionist through the Board of Interventionists in Pennsylvania, but it's nationally recognized so I can practice in any state. Awesome. Yep. So just jumping into it, what was the catalyst for you getting into interventions and becoming an interventionist? Good question. So um, it's a mixture between family dynamics of what I grew up with, um, as well as when I got older, trying to find my purpose on this earth. And I had lost several, several friends at that point, like at least 20 to substance use disorder in different forms. So it was... um, uh, seizures um, due to alcohol and drugs, uh, drug overdoses, you name it. Um, just very weird ways of dying from substance use disorder. Um, and it was one after another. And I was presented with an opportunity to work for an organization doing interventions. Um, and I said yes, because I felt like instead of being depressed about the friendships I had lost, what could I do to be part of the solution moving forward? And I ended up loving it. So how long have you been doing this? Overall, I've been doing it for about 10 years. Um, but as a, with the education behind it, it's been since 2018 that I'm actually the certified national interventionist. Got it. So there's, there's a lot to kind of unpack with what you do and, and what it entails and what it revolves around. Um, on a personal, why do you feel this is such an important, I guess, uh, work environment or, or avenue to work it into? So um, the reason why I think it's important is because, you know, they say that drugs and alcohol, that, that substance use disorder is a family disease, um, and it is. Um, because there's no book that we can open up and it says uh, step one, step two, step three of your child or your loved one being addicted to drugs and alcohol. Um, There's still so much more that we need to learn. Um, And a lot of people will say, for example, um, they're not going to go to treatment unless they're ready to go to treatment. Um, And 98% of my interventions are successful. And the reason why I think it's so important is because I really don't believe at the end of the day, anyone wants to be living that life. And it's hard when it's your family dynamic, 
um, because, and I can speak on my own behalf with my own family, um, when my sister was struggling, it was, um, F you, you smoke pot, you drink alcohol. The finger would always point and the emotions would all be riled up and nothing would be resolved. The second you put a third party professional in there who genuinely knows how to handle the dynamic, um, it, it turns into a, a, the most beautiful healing environment or the start to a healing um, a healing environment moving forward for both family and person suffering. Got it. So you kind of touched on one of the things that I see recurring as a myth. Um, one of the myths, the big myths is, you know, you have to wait till they, the addict seeks seek help on their own. Um, another one is you have to wait till they hit rock bottom. You know, and the third one is uh, intervention isn't necessary. Uh, they need willpower to, to, to overcome that. So, what are your thoughts on, on those three myths and any other myths that you may like to debunk at the moment? The, the one that always sticks out to me the most is that they have to hit rock bottom. Over 50 of my friends hit rock bottom. Rock bottom is exactly what it sounds like. It's hitting the ground. And that is the reality that a lot of families are dealing with is not doing anything, no intervention whatsoever, and they are burying their child. They are burying their sibling. Um, that is what rock bottom is. Um, my mentality doing what I do is that no one dies on, on my time. Um, I want to educate the family to understand that, that that is what rock bottom is. Um, willpower is for um, a healthy mind. Willpower isn't, and I can use myself as an example, smoking cigarettes. I've been smoking cigarettes since I was 12 years old. Um, I could say I had no willpower, but now that I look at it and I've quit smoking, it consumed my brain. It still consumes my brain, and that's why they call it, you know, any drug or addictive, um, it, it is a brain disease. It takes over the brain, it changes the neuropathways. Um, and the only time that somebody's really going to have a moment of clarity is if they get the poison out of their systems to think clearly. I've dealt with overdoses on a couple different levels based off of my experience as a police officer and as, uh, as an EMT and first responding that way. What are some of the, what are some of the ways that we can, help people prior to getting to the point of intervention if there is any so and the smartest thing i've ever heard was from a doctor at um, jefferson health hospital he's very well known um dr bayer and he had a symposium once and he stood up and he said this is a family disease and our family units have changed so much over the years that, that a lot of that, you know, until we can heal our families, we're not going to be able to eradicate drug and substance use disorder. Um, when it comes to changes that we need to make, I mean, there's one right now. I have a young lady who um, is about an hour drive from where I am, um, and I literally went to do an intervention um, that was unsuccessful, which um, always burns me because I'm used to... Um, getting people to commit. 
Um, I went out there on a Friday, a Saturday, a Sunday, a Monday, four days in a row. Um, it is now a month later and this young lady is still not getting the help that she needs. For someone like her, their laws need to start changing to support somebody who cannot make a decision for themselves. So that kind of jumps into the another avenue that I wanted to get into. There's a trend nationally, kind of really started with marijuana reform. Um, it's now starting to bring more drugs in and kind of really, I guess, attack the war on drugs, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Oregon is the one of the first places to decriminalize pretty much everything to a degree. Before I get into that, I think we need to address what the difference is between decriminalizing something and legalizing it. I think there's a lot of misconceptions with with that. What's your opinion when it comes to legalizing or decriminalizing drugs? Which do you think is the, the better avenue or does it kind of depend on the substance? I think it does depend on the substance because, you know, a lot of times now families will come and say, well, they want to do marijuana maintenance. Um, Each person's model is different. Some people will be prescribed Suboxone and they do phenomenal uh, moving forward and their, their life is no longer at risk. They're following it prescribed by a doctor. Um, and that's, I think, what it boils down to is, is as long as there's a doctor or a medical professional who can um, monitor the situation without the person abusing it, because um, oftentimes that's what it is. I mean, they, they want to use all of the drugs. They don't care. They don't want to monitor it and have it maintained. Um, they want all of the drugs. And when it comes to marijuana, a lot of people will say legalize it. It's being legalized. Um, and that might be successful when it comes to decriminalizing um, drugs in general. I think that's the way that my um, background pushes towards. Um, and the reason being is because in a lot of times, let's use the example of somebody going into treatment. Um, when somebody goes into treatment, I always say to them, um, you know, they're like, oh, well, I'm going to lose my job. I'm scared I'm going to lose my job. Well, you can't lose your job because legally you have a health condition. This is a health crisis. So we need to address it like a health crisis. And if I were to go before a judge and say, this man or this woman um, needs renounced treatment for dementia in California and they need a month to do this, the judge wouldn't say, no, you can't do it. So that we should be addressing it in my professional opinion we should be addressing it the same when it comes to heroin. Um, don't charge somebody for their health condition um, when it comes to like drug charges. Which I think is the kind of the genesis for the Oregon bill. It was, it was a matter of treating it as a health issue as opposed to a criminal issue. Um, right, but people, unfortunately people hear that right. and they think, what, really? Oh, so we're just gonna let everybody run rampant? No. And even when it comes to like the sites where people are, are starting to open sites where you can use heroin with clean needles and under the supervision of um, a medical professional, a nurse, so that if they overdose, they can be revived. People are like, oh, really? Well, we're going to spend all this extra money on that? Well, no. If you put in perspective the, um, the AIDS crisis when it comes to dirty needles, uh, the other aspects that go that people don't usually think of because it's outside of the box. Um, they just automatically assume, oh, you're giving them a warm place to use. They're never going to stop. No, 
the professionals there are offering the help. Are you sure you, you know, do you want to go to rehab? We can detox you. We have such and such program, this one, this one, this one. No, you're not ready. Okay, well then let's wait. Um, as long as you keep coming back here, you'll be doing it safe. They also have a phone number now where you can call up and use over the phone with somebody, give them your address. And let me tell you, that's, it, it saves lives. That's, that's what it's about. It's about saving lives. The uh, Drug Policy Alliance released a paper back in 2017, and they're basically proposing and envisioning new drug policies grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. And they kind of go into what the definitions of decriminalization and what legalization are. And the big difference, and this is something I pulled out of that paper, their definition of decriminalization is the elimination of criminal penalties for drug use and possession, as well as criminal penalties for possession of equipment used for the purpose of introducing drugs into the human body. Ideally, decriminalizing entails the elimination of punitive, abstinence-based, and coercive approaches to drug use, which seems like they want to push towards like what you're saying. It's, it's treating, it as, treating it as on a case-by-case basis for the person. And legalization is just the elimination of criminal penalties, but under regulation and control, which is the big difference between decriminalizing something and legalizing something. And to your point before, people get that myopic view of what they've been told and how it affects them as opposed to the reality, the truth to things, and how it affects society. Right. So where do you think we can improve? And this is conversations you and I have had numerous times. Where can we improve as a society to not only, and I understand that eradicating addiction is probably an impossibility because it's, it's, it's a human thing. Um, but where can we start to kind of build those bridges to, to really make deep road impacts? That's a, it's a, that's a loaded question. Um, but I, I think my mind always goes back to that doctor saying that it is a family, um, that we need to heal our families in order to eradicate addiction or to get close to eradicating addiction. Um, it's suspected that there's trauma, a lot of trauma in people who are, um, more inept to use. But I think if we were to continue to explore when with programs like DARE um, in middle school um, to get families to understand that it is out there, um, you know, the one misconception that I remember as a kid, and, you know, I'm almost, I'm glad that I thought this way as a kid, but when I was a child, I thought, if you try heroin, you're dead. Like, that was just my mentality um, because of all I had learned in, in courses in school, group courses. As I got older and I started um, started dedicating my life to this population of people, you find out that only 23% of people that try heroin get addicted. Most people think 99% of people who try heroin get addicted. Right. So there's underlying things I think we need to explore it a lot more. Um, I think we certainly need to look at it 
with the same respect that we do the death penalty and the philosophy on death penalty. Um, when we think of death penalty, um, you could get into a philosophy class and somebody will say to you, well, this person killed a, a family in a village. And everyone in the class will say, oh, well, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Kill him. He should get the death penalty. But then you dig a little bit deeper and you find out that this gentleman who killed people in a village, he has a family too. He has a mother. He has a father. And so his life has value to those people. And when we start exploring it in that way, we're putting a value on every human life. No matter what the consequences are, there are people who will say, Narcan, why give a junkie Narcan so they can keep reviving themselves? Well, that's my child. And I feel my child has a purpose in this world. And if we start looking at it with that compassion, that every life has a purpose and a, um, a meaning, then we're going to start addressing it a lot differently will be able to address it as the health crisis that it is. So does that make sense? It, make, it makes sense to me. It's the mentality that an eye for an eye makes the world go blind. And until mm -hmm. you open up both your eyes and, and look at the bigger, broader picture, you're not going to see people as human sometime. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I've taken away from the war on drugs is it's vilified and demonized addicts who have, you know, for one reason or another, become an, an addict of whatever their drug of choice is. Sometimes it's, it's not of their own doing. Sometimes it's to, to numb pain from, as you said, trauma. Sometimes right. they just get caught up in things. So everybody's got their own story and. It's not just cut and dry. Right. I'm a firm believer that there's, there's very, very few things in this world that are black and white. And it, it's such a vast spectrum of gray for everything else. And until we start looking at people just as other humans, as opposed to, you know, what their addiction is, what their skin color is, what, you know, their occupation is, we're going to have these perpetuating issues. So I, I think we need to start educating our kids a little better I also think it needs to be opened up. It's not just about educating. It's about we as adults, we've had, we, we have this immense uncomfort with saying, geez, I was wrong. I disrespected you taking responsibility, parents taking responsibility. And the, the biggest, the biggest, um, I guess life experience for me that helped me to realize was when I was running group homes and I had one of the girls come up to me and say, I really need to talk to you. And I said, I just need 15 minutes. I'm going to handle the work that I have to do. And then I'm going to talk to you. Well, she came back 15 minutes later and I still wasn't done. I said, I need five, 10 more minutes. She said, you are just like my mother. And I pushed my computer, my, my keyboard away from me. And I said, you're right sit down and, and the uncomfort that came from her from me acknowledging I was wrong she felt uncomfortable like oh so I'm a kid but I still have a voice in this um so I think it's more about you know having that education for young kids 
and adults and family units and being able to sit down and say, this is what we've been through as a family. Let's heal it before it gets to the point of coping with a substance. I think that comes down to massive changes in, in the way society acts. I mean, I think right now we're we're kind of in an age of outrage where people just look for outrage or a reason to be outraged about anything and everything. Mm-hmm. And like you said, there's there's very little accountability. There's there's very little responsibility and where that fault lies is hard to be found. And for, for some people, it is their parents. Some people, it's their friends. And it, it's a cyclic thing that you know, hope you can find a way to break it. But uh, aside from education, what else can we do as a society to maybe change perceptions on things? I think we're all far too uncomfortable with knowing human suffrage. All of us have suffered. Your suffering may not be the same as my suffering, but at the end of the day, this is about human suffrage, hurting, pain, masking the pain. I think it's important for all of us, no matter what the context of the conversation is, to learn how to empathize and not sympathize, Uh, to really be able to put your feet in someone's shoes and open up that conversation and say to somebody who's struggling with addiction, what happened? Do you want to talk about it? How can we help you? What can we do differently? You don't want the help? Well, please know that I'm always going to want you to do better for yourself, um, but I'm, I'm here to help you through whatever it is that you're going through. Mind to mind. I think there's also a big notion of, in some ways it might be referred to the toxic max, toxic max masculinity. In other aspects, I think it's people's fear or, or failure to want to acknowledge or feel comfortable with speaking about their pain. I, I think empathy is a sorely lacking emotion in our society and it's not just not just in our country but i mean it's it's globally but you know we see it more here and one of the things that drove me nuts when i was a police officer and dealing with domestic violence incidents that involved children was watching a parent manipulate the other parent with the use of the kids and when a kid goes through that it it alters their perspective. It, it doesn't help them adjust or understand what's going on. And a lot of it's times... It's teaching them how to cope. Not in a healthy way, but it's that's their way. As, when they start growing up, they think that's how you're supposed to cope. Learned behavior. Right. And it's not just mm-hmm. cope, it's, but it's it's how to treat other people. Mm-hmm. And until we can start addressing people, like I said, as each other as humans and treating each other as humans as we want to be treated we're going to have these constant stumbling blocks. What are your thoughts on the recent legislation that New Jersey passed for legalizing marijuana? I think it should be addressed uh, the same as alcohol. 
um, in the sense of there's a time and there's a place. Um, I don't think it would be appropriate for people to now show up to work high, right. uh, to take a lunch break and get high and smell like it walking around the office. I think there's still a level of self-respect that's involved, um, as well as driving under the influence. Um, some people feel like they can drive high and they're fine. There are other people who I have witnessed um, are terrible drivers to begin with, and then you get them high, they get paranoid, and they're, te- you know, that, that should be addressed as a, a DUI if they're putting themselves and other people on the road at risk. Um, I certainly, I stand firm with children under the age of 21. Their brains are still developing, and I don't think that it's a good idea for them to have access to it. I think it should have an, a legal limit the same way that alcohol does. I, I agree. There's a lot of parallels between alcohol and, and I think responsible cannabis use. The problem I have with what I've read of the bill that Jersey passed is in some ways they're they're kind of handcuffing police officers and they brought a couple elements into the bill that I don't think should have been brought in. You know, Not to say that how we address uh, adolescent and underage drinking is you know the absolute definitive way that it should be done. I think there's ways that we can fix it but and improve. But with the new legislation, they've now made it illegal or they've basically told police officers that even if they smell alcohol on, on an underage person, they can't use that as their initial reason for making contact with that person, which I think is kind of absurd. Why alcohol? I mean, alcohol has nothing to do with marijuana. That's that's kind of where I was going with that. They, they brought yeah. things into this bill that really had no reason. I also take issue that it took them, what was it, almost four months after Election Day to, to get this rolled out with all the stumbling blocks that they had. With addiction, do you see a, a higher pre- prevalence of alcohol? Or I guess what is, the, what is what you see is the highest reason or, or the addictive substance? I, there's, there's really no, you're, you're asking like what, what drug is being used the most right now? Um, I could only tell you areas of what drugs being used. So like I could tell you in central New Jersey, um, and age wise, usually people over the age of 30, um, from like 40 up, it's usually alcohol. Um, it's legal. Um, they can get access to it. Um, but I see the trends all over. I mean, there's, um, the case that I have tomorrow for an intervention is, um, ketamine. Uh, predominantly it's heroin or alcohol. When they call me in crisis mode, it's heroin or alcohol. Do you deal with all addictions or is it just chemical addictions? No, I deal with everything. So next week, I go to California for a gambling addiction. I, I asked about that because it's gambling is definitely one of the bigger issues that I think kind of flies under the radar. I mean, even though with every ad you see for the betting apps and lottery, it, they always have that trail at the end. But I, I don't think people understand just how big that is. 
it is a you know, it well again so alcohol and and not gambling gambling's not legal but um betting money on on certain things is legal right um but the the idea that you're escaping you're using that to escape something so your relationship at home with your wife or husband isn't up to par you go to the casino so it starts off with trying to escape some sort of pain and you go to the casino and it starts off and even that i mean it lets off a positive endorphin in your brain when you're betting money in the beginning um and escaping this pain it it gives you a, a warm place to hang especially if you're lucky enough to, to win it just reinforces right. it that the next win is right. going to be the big one and right. then that's going to erase all the pain that you're going through because you'll have money to mitigate whatever that issue is and then that's not enough, and then the next isn't enough, and then the, and it just gets worse. Yes, absolutely. What would you? What advice would you give somebody if they feel that a loved one is showing signs of addiction where they need the, an intervention? What are some signs that you would tell them to look for before making the decision to have an intervention or, or at least approach the, their loved one? Um, I mean, once you know, you know. Um, so when it comes to drugs, it, it, it's not, I know some people will be like, well, let me wait another week or let me see. And it, it takes on a life of its own. So there's no better time than now. Um, and everybody's level of, of urgency is different. Um, if, if I could get one of my parents face to face and say, you know, how would you have done this differently? Well, the first signs of, um, their child going out of the house late at night or stealing something from them, you know, they, they allow their children, oh, they stole 50 bucks from me, oh, they stole $300 from me, they let it go, and they let it go, and they let it go. Um, I would say to immediately hold your loved one accountable. Um, the more it goes on, the worse it's going to get. Um, and I would say to certainly, you know, if there's behaviors that, are already going on in the household, like a, a spouse is a heavy drinker. The children are exposed to that being a learned way to cope. They see dad drinking whenever he's stressed out or whenever it's the weekends. Let's put this in perspective. With this whole quarantine, hmm. I don't know how many moms I saw that posted, oh, guess what? It's wine o'clock. That is showing you that they are stressed out with the pandemic and their way of coping is to get a glass of wine or what I've heard it called a globotle. So it, it, you know, when you start seeing significant things like that, coping with a substance, uh, money going missing, um, behavioral concerns um, that lead to risky behaviors with drugs and alcohol, it's already a problem. So there's abuse and misuse and then there is the next level, which is addiction. When your body is physically, um, your body's not physically capable of getting through a day because the tolerance is so high for that drug of choice. And I've I've worked with people. Uh, I worked with a guy who is a functioning alcoholic. And again, falling back on my experience with law enforcement, there have been people who are arrested for DUIs who their blood alcohol concentration was vastly higher than what I was expecting based off of their ability to function with being as inebriated, inebriated as they are. 
it is or are interventions covered by health insurance or is that really just kind of a elite type of healthcare coverage? They're, they're not, it's not covered um, by health insurance. Um, and I do understand why. I mean, the, the, health, insur- the health insurance companies are, are, we would basically be going to them and saying, okay, we need you to cover this person going into treatment for drugs and alcohol. And they would be paying for that. Then you would be going to them saying, okay, but in order for us to get them in there, we need you to pay for or cover the intervention part of it. The way that insurance companies look at it is the same stigma that a lot of people in America look like look at it. Uh, well, if this person's not willing to go on their own, then why waste the money? Got it. Um, most people charge for an intervention eight to ten thousand dollars. Ouch. And how how they sleep at night, charging families that amount of money, it will never sit well with me. Now, I grew up on Medicaid. Uh, my sister, who struggled, uh, you know, pretty badly growing up um, with drugs, she was Medicaid. And there was, um, for me, when I built a new way of life intervention services, it was, what can I do to support families at a reasonable cost. So I only charge 3,500 for an intervention. And it covers a lot. I mean, I couldn't do anything less than that only because they are so extensive. Um, and I can you know, certainly tell you about how the process goes, but this is usually a month, if not longer, that I am working in intensely with this family and that person um, to make sure that they're successful, because that's the point of this. The point of this is to help this person to be successful in their sobriety. Can you walk us through a, a standard, if there is a standard intervention? There is, <laughs> there is no standard. Um, I always say I prepare for the worst and hope for the best. I've had, um, I'll tell you the way that it goes, and I'll tell you some examples of how it's gone. Um you know, you plan too far ahead and nothing falls into place. That's just an intervention. Right. Um, so typically the way that an intervention goes is um, I'll get a phone call. Uh, today I got one, for example. And it's a, a woman whose husband is struggling with alcohol and Adderall. Lost his father um, over the summer and his mother is very ill as well. And that is a catalyst for him to continue to drink, continue to drink, to get worse and worse and worse because he has no ability to value himself right now. He's mourning, and this is his way of dealing with it. So typically, I get a full history from the person that's calling me, and that's the person I call them the point of contact. I keep with that point of contact because otherwise I'll have 16 family members calling and texting me all day, every day, (laughs) all hours, Um, And it does still happen. Um, I try to keep boundaries on it. The point of contact is the person I stay in touch with. I do a free consultation um, to understand where they're at, where their family is um, as a whole, and and just assessing the situation. If it was an intervention that I felt I couldn't do, um, I would say, I I think you need to look in a a different direction and give my my suggestions. Um, From there, I do what's called... Do you do uh, like a medical, at least get an idea of what their medical health is like as well? Correct. Right. So 
Um, and that, that kind of goes into the pre-intervention. Got it. So the, the consultation is just a starting process. Um, obviously, if they had any crazy medical um, condition, it's definitely vital to their um, progress because the facility that they would be going to would need to know all of these details. Um, so that consultation takes place. Um, I say to them, I any questions that come up, because as soon as they hang up with me, they're like, oh, shoot, I forgot. I should have asked this. I should have asked this. I should have asked that. It's second nature to me. For them, it's a new process. So I tell them, write down all the questions that you have or text them to me, and we'll go over it, and I'll get you through this inch by inch. The second process is them talking to anybody that's going to be a part of the intervention, and we set up what's called the pre-intervention. Now, because of the pandemic, I've been doing it via Zoom. I get them face-to-face -face over the computer. Um, and I get everyone's perspective. There's no detail that's going to go unnoticed. There may have been something that happened when they were three, year old, three years old that the mother can uh, express that the best friend can't. Right. So every detail is important. Um, and that way it gives me a good eye shot into what that person's struggling with. Um, anxiety, depression, so forth, so on, and how to make it a successful intervention. After that pre-intervention, uh, we schedule the actual intervention, and everyone writes a letter. Of um, and it, you know, I've seen interventions where it's very cutthroat, and they're like, "You messed up, and you did this," and that's not how I do it. Um, I'm a firm believer that love is the only thing that can poke holes in this darkness that they've surrounded themselves in. And when they're surrounded by their closest friends and family, it's really hard to say, I don't care enough about myself because those people in the room are saying, we know you can't care for yourself right now. We're willing to care for you. And we want you to get, take the help that's being offered today so that we can all get through this together. We love you, and we know you're face first in the, in the dirt. We're going we're gonna to pull you up and help you do this step-by-step, step, all of us as a family. Got it. What kind of changes to the laws as we have right now do you see could improve not only how we handle drug addicts, but the intervention and the healing that goes with that? As we said, we, you know, it, it's typically dealt with on a criminal basis and things like that, and I, I think we've shown that's not working and we need a better way. It's not working. You know, the one thing I will say that may sound a little contradictory is when it comes to certain people, they it's a mental health crisis, right? And so when somebody is suicidal, we don't walk away from them and say, all right, you're, you're good by yourself. Cool. Walking this way. No. I mean, we should be addressing it the same way. Um, so it might sound a little contradictory, but I think that the way that we should change things is certainly make treatment mandated for certain people that just flat out refuse. Um, and the reason being is drugs and alcohol hijack the brain. It literally hijacks the brain. They start thinking differently. They'll rationalize till they're blue in the face, complete irrational thoughts. Right. I, I can't, I'm not ready to get help right now. And it's like, I, I have this one person right now who's like, you know, so what? it's either I put a gun in my hand or I shoot heroin and I have a chance of dying. One's less painful. I mean, there's no rationale with those thoughts. Um, they're not able to make a decision for themselves. So I think we, as a country as a whole, I think 
there are times when people should be mandated to treatment so that we can get the poison out of their system so they can think clearly. And then on the other hand, when it comes to addressing treatment, I think um, that it needs, we, we shouldn't be criminalizing it, certainly. Um, and we should really, a lot of the police officers now look to somebody and say, hey, we're not going to charge you. Uh, we see that you have heroin. We're going to take it away. Um, you know, we don't want we don't want you to to demise to this. Um, do you want the help? Can we help you? You know, there's plenty of programs that we can connect you with, um, and it's it is changing things a lot because it's treating these people who already have lost a lot of self worth. It's helping them to feel like they are still valued human beings that are part of society. Yeah, I think there's. The adversarial component of law enforcement and society in general, I think, is extremely problematic. And there's a lot of reforms that we need for a lot of different things. But um, I'm going to shift gears entirely and jump into the levity of things after all that heaviness we were just talking about. It's heavy. It is heavy. Um, and I'm going to throw a couple of questions at you that are a little random, we'll call it. Which would you rather have? Thrilling job of a storm chaser and the risk of dying, or the curious job of a treasure hunting, scavenging shipwrecks for treasure? Uh, shipwrecks for treasure. Why is that? Uh, I feel like it would be something different every day. Agreed. Um, I love scuba diving and to kind of rediscover lost things and Right. Being a history buff, I think it would be a, a lot of fun to unearth those things. Would you rather read a book or listen to the audiobook? I'm. That's a tough one. I'm in between. I, now that technology is changing, I would probably say an audiobook, but as a kid, I loved reading books. I think it depends. I think it depends on the book. I think some books I would run a read, to, you know, depending upon the talk of it. It's a fiction thing. I'd run and read that so I can develop the picture in my head. But right. if it's something more fact-based or, or dry subject, I think the right voice can kind of wet in the appetite for one to listen to and digest that the right way. So, Right. I'm, I agree with you. I'm, I'm, I'm on the same page now that you said. Let's see. What, one more. Would you rather rehab injured wildlife or help clean up the environment? You're asking a humanitarian. <laughs> Which one? Do, I would probably say both. I think if you rehab wildlife, you can also at the same time rehab the environment. Right. So I think that's one of those questions that you can choose either side. So, so where can people contact you should they need your services or have questions? Sure. And um, it is all about questions. And there's... Even the time that we've spent here now, there's so much more that goes along with it. Right. Um, and I always tell my families I want them to feel comfortable and, and know, you know, everything that they have on their mind is, is answered. Um, so I, I use my direct cell phone, even from my website. Um, and the reason why I do that is because these are families that are in crisis. Um, they need immediate answers. So my direct cell phone for families, um, and I can I leave it on here? Yeah. I'm going to put it's, everything into the show notes, but you can feel free to throw it out there right now. 
Perfect. Okay. So uh, my cell phone is 609-558-3409. The website is anewwayoflifeservices.com. And um, we are starting to branch out, actually. Um, I have uh, California family out there and then soon to be Louisiana. So it's fast and furious as far as how far we're getting to help. We're definitely making a difference, and uh, I'd love to help anybody, honestly. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time and, and for your insight. Uh, it's always fun talking with you. So, Thank you. I appreciate you. I would love to have you on again in the future, and hopefully we can talk about some changes that have occurred if we ever get some good changes to our legislation. So, Absolutely. We're actually – I'm in the process of um, trying to get in touch with a mother – who lost her daughter, um, who's been trying to do something called Sabrina's Law, which is getting people into mandated treatment. So hopefully we'll have some changes on that level, and, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, you keep doing what you're doing. It's definitely something that is an unfortunate need. Um, Yeah. But uh, on that note, stay healthy, and I'll talk to you soon. Same to you. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, dear. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.